Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will discuss the college football bowl system. This system that currently supplements the college football playoff dates back more than 110 years to Pasadena, California. It was there in 1902 the first ever bowl game was played between Michigan and Stanford. This game was played in front of a small 10,000 seat stadium in front of only 8,000 people before television was even invented. And though it was another five years before another bowl game was played in 1907, and not until 1934 when we first began to see multiple bowl games consistently played every year, the first ever postseason football game was a significant moment in college sport as it began the ever-expanding series of football games occurring between mid-December and early January each year. Today, we will deep dive into these bowl games and discuss the history and evolution of the bowl system while trying to provide insight into how we got to where we are. So if you ever wondered why we have bowl games, how they operate, and just what happens to all that money, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. So let's begin by going back to before this first game was even played, to the year 1890. It was in the winter of that year that the Valley Hunt Club of Pasadena, California, began to brainstorm ways to promote their unique Mediterranean type and climate to the rest of the world. Now, adopting ideas from the ancient Greeks, Romans, and medieval times, they invited people to come out for what they called a, quote, midwinter holiday where you could watch games such as chariot racing, jousting, foot races, polo, and tug-of-war under the warm California sun. The abundance of fresh flowers even made it, in the midst of winter, a unique showcase for their area. And so they planned a parade to precede all the competitions And they invited entrants to come and decorate their carriages with the blooms of these unique flowers and parade down the center of the streets. By 1895, this event became too big for the Valley Hunt Club to handle. And so they formed a special association to take over the control called the Tournament of Roses Association. Now, until 1902, the major sporting event that highlighted the Tournament of Roses and the Tournament of Roses Parade was a polo match. But they wanted to try to do something different in the year 1902, and so a member of that association suggested hosting a football game. Now, the president of the tournament association loved this idea so much that they sprang into action and began to communicate with what they deemed to be the best team in the country, which was Michigan and the champion of the Pacific Coast University, Stanford. After talking with both schools, an agreement was reached between the universities and the Tournament of Roses Association for them to play in a game on January 1st, 1902. And they did in a small stadium called Tournament Park in Pasadena, California. Though the game was seen as a success from a financial standpoint, the game made the association around $3,000. It was very lopsided. In fact, Michigan won 49 to nothing, and they were winning by so much that Stanford actually went over and conceded the game with about eight minutes left to play. 
So the tournament association liked the event. They liked the fact that it was making them money in promoting their climate and their uniqueness to the rest of the world. But they were worried that if they continue to have these football contests as the major sporting event, it would drive people away because the game wasn't entertaining enough. And so in 1903, they went back and they replaced this football game with Roman-style chariot races. And it wasn't until 1916 that the Tournament of Roses went back and instituted a football game again. And it wasn't cemented as an annual event, as an annual contest, until 1921. With the postseason football competition that was a part of the Tournament of Roses parade ceasing following the 1902 game, we have to fast forward another five years to 1907 to get to the next postseason football competition. It was in this year on Christmas Day that LSU, Louisiana State University, was invited to Havana, Cuba to play in a postseason football game against Havana University. Now, the purpose for this competition, according to a scholar named Michael Wood who researches this, was to, quote, help foster the growth of football in Cuba by providing the country's upper class, students, and political and business elite another avenue for recreation, end quote. The New Orleans Time Democrat, the newspaper of New Orleans at the time, additionally said in their December 23rd, 1907 paper that, quote, the game will be a fine advertisement for Louisiana State University. As with the postseason game at the Tournament of Roses, the game in Havana was deemed a success and resulted in subsequent games being played in Cuba until 1946 when they were forced to stop for numerous political reasons. Though not initially named, in subsequent years, individuals started to call this game the Bacardi Bowl. And let's take a moment here to talk about the labeling of these as bowl games, because if you notice up until this point, I've been referring to them as postseason football competitions because that's what they were. Now, to understand where the name bowl games comes from, we have to, again, go back to those initial postseason competitions that were played. And after the success of the initial Tournament of Roses postseason football game and the subsequent success of the Cuba postseason games, the Tournament of Roses decided, again, host a football competition between an Eastern and Western college in 1960 as their major sporting event as part of the Parade of Roses. This game, as with all games until 1923, were played in the same tournament park stadium that the initial game was played in. However, during these years, the association noted that they needed a bigger stadium in which to play the bowl games as more and more people were becoming interested in it. And as a result, they decided to build a new stadium and call it the Rose Bowl based on the fact that the stadium had a bowl-like shape and the fact that the Tournament of Roses was to be played there. The continued success of the Tournament of Roses football game and the Havana game spark other organizations to see postseason football contests as a means to promote themselves and to generate revenue for their organization. Accordingly, other associations started to put on postseason competitions in the 1930s, modeling themselves after the Tournament of Roses and the game being played in the Rose Bowl. It became popular to call these competitions bowl games and ever since the name has stuck. So since we mentioned the 1930s, the mid-1930s are an important point in the history of bowl games because it's at this time we start to see multiple bowl games played consistently year after year. In fact, 1934 marked the beginning of a steady growth in the number of games per year. Though not all years saw a number increase, in some years, in fact, we see decreases. Over time, the number of games continued to grow until 2015 when we hit a record 45 games being played. 
this number has ticked back down in recent years, and today, in 2018, we'll see a total of 40 bowl games, but new bowl games are consistently being created. In fact, just this year, it was announced that Myrtle Beach, South Carolina will be hosting a bowl game in the year 2020. So we continue to see this growth in the number of games. So let's take a second here to talk about some of the numbers that we can associate with these bowl games, just so you can have an idea of the extent of what is happening. So the bowl game that has occurred the most over this 110 plus year history of college football postseason competition is the Orange Bowl, which was first played in 1935 and has subsequently been played a total of 110 times. This is followed by the Rose Bowl, which we mentioned was first played in 1902, which has been played 105 times, and the Cotton Bowl, which has been played 103 times. Altogether, we've had 65 different bowls throughout history, with each bowl being played on average 21 times. Now, this number 21, the mean, is greatly affected by those three bowls that we talked about, so it's more accurate of us just to say that the number of times a game is played varies widely. The expansive number of games played has led to 189 different teams participating in at least one competition. Alabama leads the way with the most games. They've played in 68 bowl games, followed by Georgia, which has played in 55, USC, that's University of Southern California, which has also played in 55, Texas, Nebraska, and Oklahoma, which have played in 54, 53, and 51 competitions. The 189 teams that have participated have been coached by 784 different different individuals. The most, Joe Paterno, who coached in 37 bowl games. This is followed pretty closely by Bobby Bowden, who coached 33, and Bear Bryant. I do want to point something out about these numbers when we're talking about teams and when we're talking about the coach. These numbers that I researched include all bowl games they were in, regardless of the fact that if it was later vacated or not. So that's why the numbers I'm presenting might be slightly different than numbers that you hear in the media. Now let's look at the competitors, not by school or by coach, but let's look at it from a conference standpoint, where the SEC has actually had the most number of teams participate in bowl games throughout history, sending 459 schools to different bowl games. This is followed by the Big Ten, who has sent 292 colleges and universities to bowl games, and the ACC, which has sent 257 colleges and universities to bowl games. I do want to point out independent colleges or colleges with no conference affiliation have sent 275 teams to bowl games. In total, we've had 49 different conferences that have sent teams to at least one bowl game. Now let's specifically focus on that game. On average, these bowl games have an attendance of 60,209 people. Again, I do want to point out that there's a wide level of variation from those initial games where we had a couple thousand to the massive games now where we have hundreds of thousands. The average score at the end of those games is 29 to 16 with the participants receiving on average $4.3 million for playing in the game. Now, where have these games been located? We talked about the initial game being in Pasadena, California. We've talked about Havana, Cuba. Well, 84 different stadiums have hosted games, and those 84 stadiums have been located in 56 different cities in 23 different states. 
The majority of the games, 51% of all games have been played though in only 12 stadiums. Chief among those is the Rose Bowl, which makes sense because that is the first stadium built specifically to host a bowl game and 101 bowl games have been played there. The Cotton Bowl is in second place. They've had 81 bowl games, followed by the Camping World Stadium, which has had 77, and then the Superdome, which has had 62. The main city to host these games is Pasadena, hosting 107 bowl games, followed by New Orleans, which has hosted 103, and Dallas, which has hosted 86. Now, maybe surprisingly, the main state to host has been Florida, when they've hosted 298 bowl games, Texas comes in second, hosting 265, and California coming in third, hosting a total of 215. So now that we have a better idea of some of these numbers that go into the bowl games and the history of these competitions, let's move back to present day and discuss how bowl games currently are situated. So presently, bowl games mark a three-way agreement that the conferences have with one another and the organizer of the bowl. These types of agreements between conferences and a bowl or an association began in 1947, again with the Rose Bowl, as the Tournament of Park Rose Association reached a pact with the Big Ten Conference and the Pac-12 Conference to be the exclusive conferences to play in the Rose Bowl. All present-day bowl games now follow a similar type model that was set by the Rose Bowl in 1947 as they have agreements with multiple conferences about who is going to play. Now, they're not always exclusive agreements. Maybe they'll have an agreement with two or three colleges, but they will all have agreements set into place to determine who's going to play. Let's talk about an example of this and examine the Big Ten this year and the agreements that they currently have in place. So this is how the Big Ten Conference deals with the bowl allocation of the teams. So the team that wins the Big Ten, as long as they are not selected for the college football playoff, they will go and play in the Rose Bowl against the team from the Pac-12. If the team that wins the Big Ten does go to the college football playoff, then the Rose Bowl will just extend an invitation to another team to take their place, not necessarily being a Big Ten team. They can then extend out to whomever they want. Following of the selection of the team that plays in the Rose Bowl, the Citrus Bowl gets to select from all remaining schools in the Big Ten. This is then followed by the Outback Bowl, which is then followed by the Holiday Bowl. Each of these three bowls have six-year agreements with the Big Ten in which they agree to invite five different teams to play in their bowl over that time span. For example, the Citrus Bowl this year could not select Michigan or Minnesota to play since Michigan played in the game in 2015 and Minnesota played in the game in 2014. And just as another side note, the Citrus Bowl is actually one of those bowls that's in an agreement with three different conferences, the Big Ten, the SEC, and the ACC. So they don't have to have any Big Ten team in the game if they choose not to. They could have an SEC-ACC matchup. So at this point, we have a minimum of three Big Ten teams in bowls, the Rose Bowl, the Outback Bowl, and the Holiday Bowl. And we have a maximum of five teams playing in bowls. So add in the College Football Playoff and the Citrus Bowl. From the remaining schools that haven't been selected from, the Tax Slayer Bowl or the Music City Bowl gets their choice of who they want. Now, I say the Tax Slayer or the Music City because this is actually a complicated agreement. But in essence, the two bowl games will get one team from the Big Ten. After the Tax Slayer Music City Bowl picks, that's going to be followed by the Pinstripe Bowl picking, then the Red Bond Bowl, then the Quick Lane Bowl, and finally the First Responders Bowl, in that order. So if you're keeping count, that's a minimum of eight Big Ten teams 
getting selected to play in the bowl games and a maximum of 10 teams being selected to play. A reminder, there are only 14 teams in the conference, so more than half of them can get invited to play in a bowl as long as they qualify. And the only real stipulation on qualification is you have to finish with a 500 record or better. There's even cases if you finish below 500 that you can petition to still be invited to play. This year, if we're looking at what actually happened, we have nine teams that qualified that had a 500 record or better, and all nine teams have been invited to play in bowl games. So while looking at the Big Ten and how they do it helps provide us context to how these agreements work, it's important to note that all conferences do it slightly different. Some are set up similar and operate like the Big Ten, in which there's a distinct pecking order of bowl games, where we have the highest bowl being the Rose Bowl, and then after that, we allow another bowl, the Citrus Bowl, to select, and then after that, we allow another bowl, the Outback Bowl, to select, and so on. Some conferences have a very similar structure as that. Well, others don't, where it's more of a free-for-all, where the bowl is free to invite anyone in the conference that they want. It's also important to note here that the NCA has almost nothing to do with the bowl system. They're not determining who goes to bowl. They're not determining what bowls conferences can associate with. All they're really doing is certifying that the players playing in the game are eligible to participate in the postseason competition. So as you can see, the conference affiliation in the selection process is extremely complicated. Bowl games do their best to associate with conferences and select teams that bring in the biggest fan bases out to their game, and they try to select matchups that will actually result in larger television viewership because that's a way for them to increase their revenue. Which brings me to my next point. Modern day bowls are marked not only by agreements between conferences and bowls, but agreements between the bowl and television networks and large corporate sponsorships. So the televising of bowl games dates back to 1952 when, surprise, surprise, the Rose Bowl was the first game to be broadcast. Now that year it was between Stanford and the University of Illinois, and it was broadcast on NBC. In 1955, we're able to see just how popular these televised games were because we actually start to develop television rating metrics. And the two main ones that we use are the number of households that watch the game and the rating number. For the 1955 game that was on, 10,962,600 households watched the game, which led to a rating of 36.3. Now, just for a comparison standpoint, so you know what that number means, last year's Rose Bowl only did a rating of 8.6. So those early games had massive TV ratings. Now, these numbers and the increased revenue the Bulls could generate from selling the broadcast rights to television networks and then having those television networks sell commercial and advertisements moved more and more games being placed on TV. And when you combine that fact with the growth of cable networks and sports-specific TV channels, which need games and programming on 24-7, today we have every single bowl game available to the public on TV. So since that early game that was broadcast, ESPN has become the dominant broadcaster of bowl games, and they have showed 514 games. Or, to put that number in context, that's 38% of all games since that first game have been on ESPN. That's followed by ABC, which has shown 191 games, or 13%. 
CBS, which has shown 143 games, and NBC, which has shown 127. In total, 24 different networks have broadcast at least one bowl game. On average, when we talk about the TV ratings, those games draw around 6 million households and turn out a TV rating of right around 7. It's important to point out, though, that the recent broadcast numbers are trending in a downward direction. We're having games pulling ratings of things like 0.5. Still, ESPN or ESPN affiliates remain the dominant broadcaster, showing about 80 to 90% of the games year after year. The popularity in those football games is seen by some of the massive attendance numbers and the quality TV ratings over time may well have been a major contributing factor to the infusion of corporate sponsorships into the contest as well. So beginning with the first such sponsorship of a bowl game was done by Florida Citrus, which sponsored the 1983 Citrus Bowl in Orlando, Florida. Since that initial one in 1953, bowl game sponsorships have become commonplace. This is reflected in the fact that since that initial bowl game sponsorship, 692 of the 910 bowls, or 76% of all bowls, have a corporate title sponsor. The most common sponsorship among all of them over that time span has been Outback, which has sponsored 25 games. This is followed by FedEx, who sponsored 23 games, Tostitos, which is sponsored 21, and Chick-fil-A, which is sponsored 20. On average, these companies are engaging in sponsorships of bulls for around five and a half years. And these sponsorships have had a dramatic impact on the growth of the games as the payoffs for the games has risen significantly as well. So remember the first bowl game I said in 1902 was played between Michigan and Stanford. Well, the payout for that game was $7,000. Since then, we've seen a dramatic increase. And now the average payout is around $4.3 million per game. This oftentimes sparks the question, who actually gets that money? Does it go to the individual school? And the answer is kind of. In most cases, the money that's made from a payout of a bowl game goes to the conference. They then will pool the money from all of the bowl games that their teams have gone to, and based on whatever rules or regulations that they have in place, they will split that money up between the schools. Sometimes they will do an equal split where everyone gets an equal proportion. Sometimes they'll do a proportional split where the team that generated the most money gets the most money back. It just depends on the rules. So just like we did before, let's look at the Big Ten and an example of how much money they're actually generating and then what they do with that. So the best data set that I could find was from the 2015 season. So that year, the Big Ten had 10 teams play in bowl games. The combined payout for those games was $32,487,500. That is the amount of money that the conference received. Now, in 2015, if you remember, the Ohio State Buckeyes actually played in the college football playoff. And the way the college football playoff is set up is that every conference that has a team in the game receives an additional $51 million. So we have to add that $51 million to that $32 million that the rest of the games generated. In addition to this money, All Big Ten schools who have a football team that meets APR standards, which these are the academic standards that are set in place by the NCA, 
each of those teams that meets those standards is given $300,000 from the college football playoffs. If you do some quick math, that means that the league received an additional $6 million. So if we add all that up, that's $89,487,500 that the Big Ten Conference generated in 2015, which they can then split between all 14 schools, meaning each individual school receives $6,391,964 in 29 cents, regardless of if they played in a bowl or they didn't. In addition to this, Schools that play in a New Year's Six Bowl game, the Rose Bowl being one of them, receives $2 million from the college football playoff to cover their expenses. If they play in a semi and a final, they will receive $4 million to cover their expenses. So each individual school is able to generate a good amount of money from the bowl system that we currently have in place. And the schools will use that money oftentimes to maybe pay off bonuses that they owe to coaches, or maybe to pay for scholarships or equipment or just general operating costs. The one group that's left out of this that people oftentimes talk about are the athletes who don't receive any money for playing in those games. However, don't feel too bad for them because they oftentimes do receive some pretty elaborate gifts for just being invited to play in the game. If we look at some 2017 examples, the Liberty Bowl, which was played between Iowa State and Memphis, every player that was a part of those teams received a Bass Pro shopping trip, they received a Belova caviar watch, they received Nike athletic shoes, sports sandals, they received a Nike backpack, and a Nike football. If we look at one of the New Year's Six Bowls, the 2017 Fiesta Bowl, which was played between Washington and Penn State, each player received a PlayStation PS4 Pro bundle, a fossil watch, and a backpack. So while the players aren't making money, they are getting gifts given to them. Now, a lot of people would argue, well, wait, doesn't that make them a professional athlete? The NCAA has rules in place that allows a student athlete to receive a gift for participation in a postseason competition. This includes not just football. When I played soccer, we would get gifts from the ACC for making it to the ACC tournament. So with all this background and all these stats, the question still remains, why do we even have postseason football games? Especially since winning so many of these games really means nothing. Well, just like the original Rose Bowl and the Bacardi Bowl in the early 1900s, bowl games today still to a large degree are seen as a way to promote the city hosting the game and the teams involved. So for example, if we look at the Orange Bowl and their mission statement, it says, quote, the Orange Bowl committee was created in 1935 with the mission of generating tourism in South Florida through an annual football game and supporting events, end quote. In addition, if we look at the Holiday Bowl, which is hosted in San Diego, the executive director of the bowl, an individual named Mark Neville, said in a newspaper article, quote, our whole objective is to generate tourism and exposure for San Diego. We fill hotel rooms, we put people in restaurants, we put people in local attractions. He estimates that over the last few years, the bowl game has generated $800 million for the local community. And just one last example, the Music City Bowl in Nashville echoes all of this in saying, quote, this postseason collegiate football game was created in 1998 to stimulate a positive impact on the Nashville economy, national image, and community pride while showcasing the city as a premier destination for audiences throughout the country. The Music City Bowl, 
the Holiday Bowl, the Orange Bowl are all, are all adapting what the Rose Bowl initially did when they put on an event to celebrate their city. Echoing the first Barcardi Bowl, athletic directors and university presidents continue to want their schools to compete in bowl games because they see the games as a way to generate positive exposure for their university. The thought process is if I'm seen on TV and I'm exposed to a population in a different region of the country that I'm not normally exposed to, then arguably I'll be able to help build my university brand and hopefully increase the amount of applications for students to come there. I might even, through this exposure, generate more donations to my university, which can help in my operating costs. Now, there's some research that supports this general idea, but most of that research deals with postseason tournaments and only really between national championships and increase in application numbers. A direct link has been found for teams that win national championships and the number of applicants they receive the following year However, we don't have any research that looks at small bowl games and the impact that that bowl game might have on some of these factors. Colleges would also argue that bowl games are beneficial to the team because it allows the coach some additional practice time with the athlete. And they'll further say that going to these bowl games provides their student athletes with unique experiences where they get to travel to new places, be part of a big event, and it's a form of a reward for their hard work during the season. It wasn't until recent history that teams and schools could also add a justification of wanting to go to bowl games because it gave them a chance to win a national championship. Let's move then to talk about how these national championship contests got started out of the bowl system. If we go back in history, as more time passed and we have other sports start to form within the NCAA, and national championships starting to occur, we start to see more and more people following and watching those competitions. So think about things like the NCAA basketball tournament, both men and women. It grew over the years to the point where more and more people were watching. And as this time passed and these, and these championship events became more popular, fans of college football began to clamor more and more for a championship of their own. Because up until present day, the way a national champion was crowned was subjective. It was voted on by coaches and members of the media. During this time of voting a national championship, the fans and the media would argue that postseason bowl games provided an avenue for determining a championship rather than just a vote. They would often look at the football championship series, which was previously known as Division I AA, they would look at those football games and the fact that they instituted a four-game playoff in 1981, and they would ask, why can't we do the same thing? As a result, multiple organizations were established in association with the bowl games over time with the sole goal of pitting the top two teams in the country against each other at the end of the season in a game that would be titled a national championship. After split championships in 1990 and 1991, an organization was established in conjunction with the bowl games with the sole goal of pitting the top two teams in the country against each other in what would be called a national championship. The name of that organization was the Bowl Coalition. While the deal behind the coalition, that is pairing the top two teams in the country against each other at the end of the season, was a good one, the execution of that idea was fairly poor as neither the Big Ten nor the Pac-12 were involved. 
This was due to that previously discussed agreement in 1947 that they would play their postseason games at the Rose Bowl. As a result of this, and some other minor flaws, the Bowl Coalition gave way to the Bowl Alliance in 1995. However, they again failed to include the Big Ten and Pac-12 in the Alliance, dealing with that same issue of the Rose Bowl. And in fact, that led to a failure in both 1996 and 1997 to have the top two teams in the country play. Because one of the teams was, was playing in the Rose Bowl each year, and the other team was playing in one of these sanctioned Bowl Alliance games. Finally recognizing the area of the ways, the Bowl Championship Series was established in 1998. Here, they finally had an agreement with all the major conferences of the time. The ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the Pac-10, the Big East, and the SEC. They also had an agreement with the three FBS schools that were independent, maybe most importantly Notre Dame, and all of the top bowl games, the Fiesta Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, and the Rose Bowl. And this agreement established a means to pit the top two teams in the rankings against each other at the end of the year to establish a true national championship. As one scholar notes, quote, the BCS originated to guarantee a true national championship game in college football without erasing the history and pedigree of college football bowl system. That's an important point because while we have the national championship game, we still were able to maintain all the other bowl games that were going on without harm. This BCS system that they put in place led to increased revenue production for the four big bowl games that were associated, which also led to increased payouts to the school, which made both sides happy. However, the fans, the people still weren't satisfied. So finally, in 2014, a four-team playoff was established, and it was labeled the College Football Playoff. Much like the BCS, the playoff is made up of an agreement between FBS conferences and the Bulls. Now, they've expanded the Bulls that they have an agreement with out to six games. So we have the Rose Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, and the Peach Bowl. Four teams are then selected by a committee at the end of each year to play in a playoff. These six bowl games that I just mentioned rotate hosting national semifinal games in just regular bowl games, and then every year championship is played in a different city that has submitted a bid to host the game, much like the NCAA basketball tournament does it or the Super Bowl does it. So that's where we stand today. While many people still clamor for the playoffs to be adjusted, mostly talking about extending it from four teams to eight teams, the current system we have in place seems to be a pretty good compromise between the traditionalist who like the traditional bowl games and the meaning and the ideas behind them and those more liberal fans who want to just see the sport crown a champion. So will we see change coming in the future, moving more towards having this tournament? It's really hard to say because unarguably more money could be created if we extend the playoffs out. But then there becomes questions about who gets that money. Will we just see more money go to the big time conferences, what we call the power five? If so, that could actually result in a further separation between those big name programs and smaller schools, and that might harm the sport. Furthermore, college presidents and athletic directors, as well as conferences, have cited worry that if they extend the playoff too much, even if they're able to generate more money, they could actually harm other bowl games. They worry that increasing the playoff might diminish some of that history, that 110-year history of postseason football. And as a result, maybe that actually leads to a decrease in money over time. And maybe most importantly, we have to ask the question of how changes in a bowl system might affect 
student athletes. Well, yes, they do get some great experiences out of going and they do get some gifts given to them. What effect would it have on them and their academics and their health if we continue to extend postseason competitions? We don't know the answer to any of these questions right now, but hopefully our discussion here today has provided some insight into the bowl system, where it comes from, how it operates, and where it might go in the future. If there's anything we didn't cover in this podcast about bowl games or anything else that you want to know about sport, please feel free to connect with us on Instagram at the sport professor and send us a DM. We're trying to grow our fan base. So follow us, rate us, leave a review on iTunes. If you have any other ideas for topics that you'd like us to cover, please let us know. Until then though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the sport professor podcast. <laughs>